Looking to generate more revenue and build relationships with gamers worldwide? Let Exola be your guide. Exola, a global video game commerce company, has helped thousands of game developers and publishers of all sizes fund, market, launch, and monetize their games globally and across multiple platforms. To learn more, please visit xsolla.pro slash A-O-I-A-A-S. Hey everyone, I'm Trent Custers, co-founder and studio director of League of Geeks, and this is The Game Maker's Notebook. Today, I've had a conversation with Ben Esposito, independent game developer, probably most well-known for his title, Donut County, published by Annapurna, but most recently, his FPS, like card-based FPS speedrunning platformer with anime vibes, uh, Neon White. It's an incredible game and really harkens back to those early 2000s PS2 games, which is an absolutely deliberate choice that is incredibly well executed. And that's kind of a hallmark of Ben's whole career in games is this degree of execution and aesthetic and confidence. And we talk a little bit about that later on in their podcast, what gives games a sense of confidence and how we can instill that in them as developers. Um, But naturally we go back, we talk about how he got started in games, making mini golf in his backyard, Counter-Strike maps, his time at Giant Sparrow, working on games like The Unfinished Swan, What Remains of Edith Finch, some of the lessons he learned there. And it's a fascinating story. Ben's an award-winning independent game developer and being able to have a chat with him and talk shop, as he said, um, was an incredible experience and I hope you enjoy it too. So without further ado, here is Ben Esposito. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Ben. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you, buddy? I'm doing good. There's a lot of chaos around here, new baby and stuff, but yeah. um, I'm just, we're staying on top of it. Yeah. How old's the newborn? Uh, he just turned one. His Amazing. birthday was two weeks ago. He doesn't like cake. Um, <laughs> you discover out. that at the birthday, right? That you, that's the only opportunity you first get to discover is like first birthday. Do they like I- cake or not? Everyone is sitting around being like, when is he going to eat it? (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Um, Well, hey, uh, thanks for joining us. It's wonderful to have you on Game Maker's Notebook. I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Well, hey, uh, we usually start this podcast um, the same way that we're going to start it today as well, which is... No surprises, uh, which is asking someone like their first memory of games or how they first got not into games development. We will progress into that, as you know. But for you, it's a particularly I find it a particularly interesting question or a question that has more weight to it in relevance to your career because your games are so steeped in nostalgia. So I'm, mm. I'm really quite interested to hear those those early experiences for you so what was it do you remember that first that first moment of awakening for the aesthetic of video games 
Yeah, I do. And unfortunately, I don't remember the name of this game, but... That I, makes it even better. It's like yeah. a, a, a shattered memory that you've been trying to, like a mad scientist, reconstruct through your career. I mean, yeah, maybe a listener will know exactly what I'm talking about. I think okay. it's fairly obscure, and I haven't really dug into it, but there was a game that I played at my much older cousin's house, and it was a Sega Genesis game that had... It was a pinball simulation uh but it had a custom pinball table mode where you could move around all the little you know oh like build your own sort of pinball Ah. exactly yeah and so you can make your own stage and my i remember my cousin had a blank stage with like two things on it and he was like oh yeah you can build you know you can build your thing and once i saw like he placed like a flipper down I, that completely blew my mind. I was like, <laughs> I can't believe you could do this. And I like immediately uh, like went home and I took out a notebook and I just drew page after page of pinball tables <laughs> because I was like, oh, I don't own this game, but I, if I come back to my cousin's house with a whole notebook full of stuff, we'll be able to make the pinball tables. You're ready to go. And so that was like my first taste of, you know, the joy of being able to make a digital game. Uh, pre- but previously, you know, my obsession before I even really had access to video games mm-hmm. was miniature golf. Oh, right. Like uh, actual mini golf, like IRL mini golf, go out into yeah. the world. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was my kind of like introduction to creating like a fantasy game. Yeah, right. Okay. So, yeah, of course. Because they're usually themed and things like that. Yeah. Right. It's like a pirate course yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And I just like was so enamored with the really heavy theming mixed with a game. Mm-hmm. And so like even when I went to Disney World for the first time, which I was impressed by, um, I was still like, ah, yeah, but like, why is there no golf here? <laughs> <laughs> like, why isn't this a game? <laughs> That's so for the, the picture you're painting of yourself, like as, as a child, like especially going to your cousin's. And this is what you're in for as a parent. This is going to happen to you as well. It's like when your child goes to their cousins or something and they come back and with no explanation, they just like furiously draw pictures of like different types of pinball tables. And you're like, what happened over there? Why why are they all of a sudden just drawing pinball tables nonstop? And the mini games obsession and taking your kid to Disneyland and being like, yeah, it's cool, but where's the game, man? Where's the lazy bag component? (laughs) Yeah, so I don't know. We'll see what happens. I don't think what I was going through was intelligible to anyone around me, but it it really was like part of whatever path I took to where I I am now. It was the genesis of where we are, of this arriving here and wherever you'll go beyond this. Amazing. And so, okay, so you, <laughs> did you ever get to go back to your cousins and make the pinball tables? Was Because I remember even though I would go back to friends' houses or something, they would have moved on from that game in the three weeks since <laughs> I'd been there last or something. Did you get to realize some of your grand designs? I did, but there yeah. was a caveat, which was I had imagined my pinball table would use the space theme that they had, mm-hmm. but he insisted that we use this kind of like gothic kind of like gory, weird, like meat pinball table theme that it had. And so it made really these nasty, squishy sounds that I really, really hated. But I, I, I had to like get through it because I wanted to make the table. So we did make one. It's your, it sounds like your first experience of client work as well. <laughs> right. I had to deal with what I was given, you know. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> Amazing. Okay, so you've you've gotten the taste for it. You've you've your obsession with you know games and themes has now moved into the digital realm. You've been making some stuff with your cousin, even though some creative compromises had to be made. <laughs> um, do you remember the sort of next next steps from there? Were you kind of obsessed with the sort of making of things, or did did you not understand the possibilities beyond that yet? Where what was what was next on little Ben's path? Yeah, it took. Um, it took a little while. Like, I think I had a big detour of like making my own mini golf courses in my parents' backyard. Okay. Right. So all uh, right. You did, you were not clear about the level of obsession. When, yeah. No, this was it, like, yeah. yeah, we would go like if my parents took us on vacation. I would like research where the mini golf courses were <laughs> good Love uh, relative to the vacation. Fantastic. But <laughs> yeah. So I think my first digital foray was really through modding. So uh, yeah. I really was into Quake through my cousin as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Shout out he, to Ben's cousin, yeah. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't making custom maps, but once I started getting into that and then Half-Life, um, I was just digging a little bit online and I found, you know, you could make your own custom maps. And I did not get into it for a few more years because mm-hmm. my brain was not developed enough. But yeah. So what I, age, yeah. speaking of brain development, what age are we talking right now? Let's get our listeners in the... In the zone. How old were you when the pinball experience happened? When the pinball experience happened, I was probably eight, I would right. say. And I was like, this- yeah, I was with it enough to like really be sincerely to trying to design stuff. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. In that perfect like overlap where you can be like almost disturbingly obsessed with something, but also and exi- <laughs> sorry, disturbingly excited by something that a child can be and then like still have the cognitive awareness to be able to put your mind to some solid designs. All right. And then sense. Quake and Half-Life, when did that, when did that sort of come into it that much? I think I was a teenage, officially a teenager yeah, okay, at cool. that time. Um, so yeah, I like, I was still in that phase of like, oh, well, I'm so excited, but I don't have any technical skills. So I'll make all sorts of plans. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it wasn't really until Counter-Strike came out, the original, like yeah. one, I think 1.0 is when I was playing it. Yeah. Um, then I started making actual custom maps because I had friends who played as well. Mm-hmm. And so we had our own server and all of a sudden I had an audience to make content yeah, for. Yeah, of course, right. And yeah. so, you know, that became my role in that group of friends was like, <laughs> I'm going to have another map next week. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all going to play it and, you know, they'll give me feedback. So that was kind of like it took it took a while until I had a specific purpose in mind, which was yeah. to make games for my friends that I like, yeah. really dug into the technical side. Yeah. OK. And do you remember, was it do you have a, a classic map like a, a Ben Esposito greatest hit Counter-Strike map that you're that you played with your friends that was just oh. absolutely loved and lauded and played unendingly? There was one um, that was, I forget what it was called, but it was like a, it was a siege map where I yeah, built right. this tank mm-hmm. uh, that I think it was the, yeah, the counter-terrorists could go inside of a huge tank that was kind of mm-hmm. like halfway in the ground and it had guns and turrets on it and stuff. <laughs> and the terrorists, it was like, I, I had no respect for the way Counter-Strike worked. <laughs> I was just like some if I could less a, famous yeah. level designer yeah yeah it's like if I could put a train on it I'll build a train I built a tank this one um, it had all sorts of guns on it and stuff and then the terrorists had to assault the like tank and yeah. they had to protect the position and stuff 
Yeah. And so but none of my maps ever worked or were balanced, but <laughs> that was fine because I would make so many new ones that yeah. like no one got sick of them. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like, but don't worry about that. I'll make a new one next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, how, long, yeah. how long did this sort of last for this, this phase and did it, did it sort of organically branch into other things or did something snap you in another, another direction, you know, sort of of game development, so to speak? I think my, my career in game development at, from then on was just modding and mapping. So I was yeah. doing single player mods. Um, for half-life half-life 2 had come out and i loved that and so i was making like total conversions that never Mm -hmm. went anywhere um and that was all all of high school i finished high school and i was like well i kind of want to study games Mm -hmm. um but i don't know so i kind of did a undergraduate degree that had electronic arts and communications and a little bit of programming and so i was like well maybe if I learn all of these things, I'll be able to turn that into a career in games, but I have no yeah. idea. You're like, these are the things that go into a game. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was kind of early enough that there weren't many games programs officially yeah. available. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like pieced it together myself. I was like, yeah. I was going to figure out what I needed to figure out. Yeah. And did you grow up in California? Was this all happening in, in Cali or? No, I grew up in New York, actually. Right, okay, okay. Other coast, and there was not as much video game adjacent stuff going on yeah. in New York. And so that's kind of why that contributed to this like feeling in my head that it was not possible for me to have a career in games, at least right. unless I somehow went to California. So yeah. I had this in the back of my head, like, maybe, but I don't know. Yeah. Was there... What about like video game schools or anything like that? Was there, cause you know, as you said, you leave high school and you're thinking, oh, okay, well maybe I want to study games and you've sort of pieced together these courses. I remember when I was trying to get into games, it was like, there are a couple of courses around, but even as like sort of a young and I went there and I was like, ah, oh, this ain't it. Like, you know, and at the time it wasn't quite there yet. Like there, we have amazing games colleges and like university courses in Melbourne now, but Mm. back then it wasn't, it wasn't really there. Was it the same in New York? Were there things around, but they weren't quite there was, you know, when did, when did, um, when did NYU kick off their game stuff? Was that happening at that point in time? I don't, they might've had something. Something, This was 2007. Yeah. Okay. Right. So they might have had something. I don't think they had the reputation yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there were a few, like, radar. yeah, there were like a few kind of more trade schools that existed, okay. um, but they were expensive and also on the other side of the country. Yeah. So my parents were like, look, you can do things that are like video games, but don't try to do a video game degree. <laughs> all sorts of other stuff that is useful. If you yeah. can program, if you can write, yeah, okay. you'll be fine. And so that that was kind of the mentality. Yeah, okay. And how how did that go? How do you feel that went? Did it did I, it vibe with you? Did you like did you finish the course and be like, "Yes," and did it set you off in the direction as you were thinking? I think it did. I yeah, think it was wow. just right for me at least. Yeah, cool. Um, so I I kind of had my hand in everything. I did a minor in computer science. I did mm-hmm. digital art classes, you know, communications as well. And it was at an engineering school, uh, mm-hmm. Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And, you know, the year after I went there, they started a games program. 
like official yeah. games program. And a bunch yeah. of my friends yeah. attended that program. Oh, wow. And I tried to transfer into it and they're like, nah. <laughs> Your portfolio is <laughs> this not isn't good for you. <laughs> Sit down. Like, All right. So like a lot of my friends graduated with games degrees and I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad that I did what I did because mm. I kind of, I really appreciated like the real much more roundabout foundations like approach right. instead of trying to build a walk away with a game i walked away with like some fundamentals for writing and some fundamentals for you know yeah. using photoshop like and yeah and like yes. programming and stuff like that yeah. so I, I i think it worked out well but i was really at the time i was really i was concerned that i was too much of a generalist yeah and that stressed me out a lot because I didn't know how I was going to get a job if I just kind of did a little bit of everything. Yeah, right. Totally. Because like, how do you fit into the video games job market as just a, a young generalist? It's like, oh, I'm just a generalist. It's like, bro, you are 21 years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, are you, like, what are you doing for me? Yeah. You actually don't know anything. <laughs> but You have not unlocked generalist just yet. Right. Um, yeah. So were you were you still making games? I imagine through through college and things like that. Do you did how did that trajectory go? Were you on some sort of a, a slingshot into something, or what, what do you do when you walk out and you and, and you have this fear <laughs> of being a generalist? You know, it was really random. Um, so I made a bunch of friends in college, and we did game jams all the time. Yeah, and we were part of the game development club, and those people are still my good friends and the kind mm -hmm. of we formed this group called the arcane kids oh that's, that's where you met the arcane yeah. kids group. okay yeah and we continued to make games to this day basically right so maybe um, for our listeners explain to everyone because this this is this is one of the coolest things about your your game making shenanigans ben oh is like what what is the arcane kids it's okay so the arcane kids is a loose group of game developers who are just troublemakers and tricksters and we make illegal games uh where the concept was like we wanted to make games that couldn't possibly be sold because one they'd be funnier and two you know they'd be kind of more pure of heart <laughs> in what they do so the actual example is that you know we made a game called Bubsy 3D, Bubsy Visits the James Terrell Retrospective. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the idea of it was like, uh, my friend Jacob owned the domain name Bubsy3D.com. I think he was just looking and it was available. <laughs> so he bought it yeah. years ago. Yeah. And so we were hanging out and we were like, oh, it'd be funny to make a Bubsy game and just put it on the website. And then if someone stumbles on it, they'd see it. <laughs> and so, yeah, we built a much more, a really elaborate kind of silly art game, you know, that used Bubsy illegally, also used James Terrell's art, <laughs> recreated James <laughs> Terrell's art in 3D. Um, so it was fun. We did a Sonic the Hedgehog game, yada, yada, yada. They're, they're a little infamous for being very over the top. <laughs> and, you know, we never made any money off of it in our in our whole career so i guess that you know that goal of not making money really panned out <laughs> exactly great plan. All sorts of opportunities and connections yeah, and stuff. yeah i bet that's actually an interesting like 
what do you have a pretty concrete example? I'm sure you do. Like, what is a concrete example of like making the weird Busby game ending up in like some work for you or some sort of connection that came back around later and, you know, really helped you out? Um, you know, I, I'll say it kind of helps more now. Like I'm, I'm seeing the benefits now more than ever because we made, you know, our first kind of like game on the internet, not our first game that we made, but our first kind of bigger game on the internet was called Room of 1000 Snakes. Yeah. And it's a game where you go into a room of 1000 snakes <laughs> and it's, it's pretty funny, but it's like, you know, takes like 30 seconds to play. Yeah. Okay. And to this day, I'm meeting people and I'm introducing myself and they're like, oh, Room of a Thousand Snakes. I love that game. And it's like, okay, cool. Like, whoa. If I want to, there's like people, I, weird people who make art on the internet who I want to work with when I contact them, they have some kind of frame of reference for who I am. Yeah, wow. And what my sense of humor is. So it kind of like, I'm seeing a lot of more benefits now. Yeah. Like, we used to get asked to do like, make me a little video game to promote my YouTube channel or something. Yeah, and okay, right. Those yeah. were not good opportunities. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Whenever you make me a little video game, like it's bad enough when I think I'm going to make a little video game, little when someone asks me to. (laughs) Yeah, it just it almost never works. So yeah, it's. Do you think that it's actually quite amazing that you know this this sort of having this delayed um, effect, you know, or the the effect of these games um, growing in a delayed fashion because. Do you think it has something to do with sort of like like the aesthetic literacy, like of the medium now growing and of like, or maybe even just more like literacy of makers and everything and, and people, or do you think it's just that like you're encountering people who genuinely found it back at that point in time? Like, is it the result of it being curated mm. in different things or? That's a good question. Uh, I think, think there's a lot of people who are like me out there who I could have been friends with. Yeah. You know, like they're not, they're not that different in age. You know, they have similar taste and Mm -hmm. aesthetic taste. And so like, we kind of all peripherally, we almost, we had near misses all the time. Yeah. Because, you know, me and the arcane kids, we were just broadcasting constantly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it made it allowed us to make a lot of connections to yeah, the people okay. who, you know, we just needed an opportunity mm-hmm. to get on their radar or whatever. And, yeah. and mostly it just, you know, makes friends. It's not like we get business deals out of it. It's just <laughs> yeah. cool. No, it's just a cool, fuzzy feeling when someone's experienced House of a Thousand Stakes or Room of a Thousand Stakes. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So we, we've, Come out of college, some of your mates as well in the game development car- club um, ended up being some of the arcane kids as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when was your first was your first commercial experience or games job? Was that the Unfinished Swan? That's correct. Yeah. And like, how far are we now from that point? Like, oh, okay. I'll tell you the story of how I even got that job. Yeah. Um, so I was graduating college in 2011. Mm-hmm. And I sincerely thought I wasn't going to get a games job. So yeah. I applied to a web development company that all my friends were getting accepted to. Mm-hmm. So I go through the interview process. I fly to Boston. I make my way up through the whole interview chain. I talk, finally talk to the CEO of the company. He's like the last interview. Mm-hmm. And he's looking at my resume and he's like, 
I see you have a lot of video games on your resume. Like this is, is that what you're interested in? And I was like, oh yeah, I love making video games. And he said, he puts the paper down. He's like, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm not going to hire you. <laughs> you should go work on video games. <laughs> That's I was, amazing. I was really upset about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really, really upset. So I flew home. I was like, what am I going to do? Like, this makes no sense. And then <laughs> oh, finally, so he was like, I'll give you a favor. I'm not going to hire you. Go make video games. But gave you no like. I thought you were going to say you had a contact. Reach no. out to my friend in California who's making a game. <laughs> No, no, he just said, go home and figure it out. (laughs) That's amazing, Ben. (laughs) So I was upset. Uh, Yeah. I was, you know, I I went back to school. I was like, what am I going to do? I'm graduating soon. And then I remembered, um, I remember, oh yeah, yeah. So I remembered uh, this prototype called the Unfinished Swan that Mm -hmm. Ian Dallas produced and at USC. And it was in Sense of Wonder Night in Japan where he showed the demo and it blew my mind. And I like was Googling it kind of randomly. And it turns out they were actually making that game and they were hiring a level designer on their website. And I was like, is this post like still when was the last time this page was updated? I don't know. <laughs> and so, but I was like, Whatever. Who cares? So I um, remembered the story of Tim Schaefer who famously made a bunch of games as a, an mm-hmm. application yeah. for LucasArts, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I'm, if I'm going to do this, let me just do it 110%. So I made yeah. a game just for Giant Sparrow, um, mm-hmm. the company making Unfinished Swan. And it was literally like kind of in the style of the Unfinished Swan. And you play this whole kind of like, inky puzzle game and at the end it has like my phone number and it's like call me call me (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome and so i sent it and they called me and they were like hey you should come fly out to la and Mm -hmm. try out for the job so i spent a week trying out and then they hired me and i moved out and turns out like you know there weren't a ton of applicants i i probably didn't need to go that hard yeah, but right. I really got their attention and, and you know, <laughs> yeah, they needed me. So it was, yeah, that was kind of like totally serendipitous. Like mm-hmm. if those order of events hadn't happened, I never would have known about the job and I never would have yeah. even shot my shot. So pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Incredible. When you say try out for the job, did they, was it kind of like, you know, when you do a trial at a cafe or something like that and you're, you're bussing tables? Was that was it a similar thing? Do you go out there for five days and they're like sort of put you through the gauntlet? Yeah, it and I don't know if that was kind of standard practice for anyone. I mean, there was it was kind of an odd situation because it was mm-hmm. a company that was incubated by Sony, uh, Sony yeah. Santa Monica. Oh, that's so, right. They had yeah, of course they had that like incubator with a bunch of different studios. Like that game company started out that way as right. well. Right, yeah. it was kind of the same model as that game yeah. company. Yeah. And so maybe that was standard practice. Maybe it was just the Giant Sparrow team, mm-hmm. uh, the way they do things. But I, yeah, I spent five days working in the studio. I hadn't moved to LA. I just flew out to work there and see yeah. how it worked. And I don't know the, the logic of it, but uh, Ian just had me do a whole bunch of random things and probably mm-hmm. just to see, like, can I figure out how to do this? And I guess I did 
well enough. And, you know, they had a deadline looming and they're like, well, we need a level designer. Uh, yeah, come on in. <laughs> let's go. All right. Yeah. Well, let, let's sort of let's sort of jump forward a bit because well, let's look at this sort of snapshot in time where you're at Giant Sparrow because you you remained on at Giant Sparrow. Am I correct for um, what remains of Edith Finch as well? For like the beginning of that project, the beginning yeah. of that project, like just some right. pre-production stuff. And so, it t- tell me about your experience there as well as this. You know, this kid who's building mini golf courses and making Counter Strike <laughs> maps, and you know, then like making games for his application. Then stepping into a studio, and I know it was like a, a smaller independent studio, but they you know, scaled a bit for um, what remains, as as far as I recall. Like, what what's what's the thing that sort of really resonated with you being in that professional environment, and you know, the the lessons that you've taken from that, and perhaps some <laughs> just shoved into Sonic Dreams or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, right. It's like, what did I take away from that? Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, moving into that environment mm. really made me feel like I 100% belong making video games. That was like the biggest thing for me. Was right. like, yeah. I still don't know a lot, but the people here and the conversations we're having and the whole environment around it and being in a bigger studio, seeing Santa Monica Studio make stuff. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'm in my element now. I was born to do this. (laughs) So that was, that was cool because I really, you know, I had confidence that I was not making a mistake at least. Yeah. Um, But in terms of takeaways, like I think something that was really cool um, for me was that I got to kind of come into the unfinished swan partway through a lot had been already developed and some of it hadn't been developed. I wasn't there from like the very beginning. Um, yeah, okay. and so I got to kind of see, I came in with more energy than anyone else because mm-hmm. they had been going through a slog on it. So I could kind of yeah. see it a little differently. Um, you were the and, new blood as they say, like, I, I love that on a project when it's getting a little bit tiring, you hire a new producer and you code or something, they come in there like, oh, this is amazing. And everyone's like, oh, that's right. It is. We, everything <laughs> is okay. <laughs> right. Cause that's you're you. just so yeah. used to getting like beat over the head with like the same problems <laughs> yeah. for like three years. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so I got to kind of see what those problems were that were lingering and, you know, have yeah. a fresh take on it. And I also got to see really fast, like what the consequences of certain design choices were. Mm-hmm. So a really good example in the unfinished swan is that there was the, there was a level, um, that you grow vines by throwing water balloons and then a vine mm-hmm. will grow to the water balloon location. Yep. Um, really cool tech, really beautiful. Um, and that was the level they built the vertical slice around. Mm-hmm. And so when I came in, there was like this really fleshed out level of growing vines that looked gorgeous and was quite mm-hmm. sizable, but that was it. That was kind of like the rest of the game had not been built yet. And what right. ended up happening was we had to keep cutting down all the other levels to make sure that we could hit quality on time. And mm-hmm. we eventually ran into a position where the game was nearly done, but the vines level was three times the size of every other level because Not it had right. been on for so long. Yeah. And so we tried to cut it down. We tried to cut pieces out of it, yada, yada, yada. But we found... Um, the way it was designed, it was all one huge space that was interconnected with sight lines between everything. And there was no yeah, okay. point of leverage to cut anything. 
without yeah. adding a new section. And so, you know, we ended up not being able to change it ultimately. And so like, mm. in spite of us knowing what we needed to do to improve the experience, it actually like wasn't possible. And so we shipped hmm. it and it's fine. It's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no well, one mentioned it, but you know, right. Yeah. Right. Right. And that kind of disappointment and the no, the feeling that like, Oh, I bet a lot of other games come out and people feel this way when they made them. Yeah. They knew yeah. what problem was there and they couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. And so that made me really sensitive to kind of early in the pipeline decisions that have huge repercussions later on. Yeah. And so that kind of shaped my approach to indie games a lot was figuring hmm. out ways to construct games such that I wouldn't be dealing with that disappointment at the end because we yeah. kind of like had a process we couldn't change at the end. And so what do you feel when you go about doing that or when you catch yourself doing that with your games, do you feel is it's a, is it sort of a cross section of a bunch of different things or is it like, is it scope generally that you're thinking about? Is it technical construction? Like, you know, you mentioned level design in regards to sidelines mm. and everything. When you say that informed your your approach to how you make indie games now, do you feel like there's some sort of like tenet that you're taking to it all the time or some way in which you are applying that? Or is it just this general thing where it's like, oh, there be dragons here, you know, like I get the <laughs> feeling like this is going to be a stupid decision. Like mm. don't, whereas other people will be like, oh, it's fine. Well, you know, they might not see it or they think, oh, we'll back out of it later because you had that experience like on your first game, first commercial game where you weren't able to back out of that experience. You found mm. you backed yourself into a corner. You're sort of just more aware of it. I think it developed an intuition just because, you know, any experience you have will give you a better intuition about similar experiences. Yeah. Uh, but really like, yeah, when it, I took a lot of concrete stuff too from that experience, um, mm. you know, really <laughs> the most immediate stuff was like the way I built my first indie game, Donut County. Mm -hmm. And then later on neon white was in this really segmented compartmentalized way where, you know, every level is its own universe that has no connection and could be shuffled in any order <laughs> with yes, not any order, right. but could easily be shuffled and cut. Um, and you know, the way I ended up telling the stories in my games, mm -hmm. uh, like you can kind of feel it in the DNA of like, you know, I would construct entire concepts around the idea that like, I can't afford to not be able to change this at the end because yeah. <laughs> I know that's when the magic happens. Yeah. So, so it's almost like a, a form of modular design almost in a way. Yeah. And it's like, there's plenty of different ways to do things. And, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of people would say that's not the you know best most impressive way to do things but also you don't have to do everything the most impressive way yeah exactly you might also value your sanity making video games as well like yeah and it turns <laughs> out like i did also find that like pe players don't know what's not there they don't know yeah. what you didn't do when you made this video game and so like yeah i've been able to take that to heart a lot and it's hard to convince myself but you know i when I'm making stuff or someone's making something for me now, building a level or something, and they come up mm -hmm. with something cool that's kind of unfeasible, I'll just tell them, like, look, they're not going to know if you just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> they're never going to yeah. know. If and you do it halfway, then they'll know. 
The thing that I found as well is that a lot of the times when you're like, you know, a couple of years or a year on the other side of the game, or sometimes even when you're closing it out, you also forget the things that you've left on the cutting room floor as well. You know, mm. like there was a moment on we're making, you know, two games at the moment, one of them jump light odyssey. Uh, there's a moment on it where we were just like agonizing over this thing, whether we change it or not. It was a big sweeping change to the game. And it just so happened that at that exact time that we were going through that, I was just, you know, digging through files, looking for something on my computer. And I found some old Armello design stuff. And there was a thing in there called heraldry. And I was like, what's Mm -hmm. this? And I opened it up and I'm like, genuinely looking at my own work, like my own design work going, what the fuck is this? I had no idea. It was like an alien document. And then some like little like spark in the back of my brain, dusty part of my brain, like kicked off. And I'm like, oh, we had a whole heraldry system in our mellow that was like almost like, um, uh, what's that word called? Rogue legacy where you're, um, mm-hmm. you know, like your, your descendants or like are playing Whoa. the game and you could track that. And so like every hero in our mellow, there would be a new hero and it would be the son of that one or, you know, the daughter or the cousin or whatever. Um, and we, and you could see your heraldry at the end and we were so attached to this system and it <laughs> eventually we cut it cause it was a stupid idea for <laughs> like if you step back for one moment, you will see that. Um, but I fully forgot that it existed. And so wow. like it's, and it really gave me perspective when we were looking at this problem that we we're currently in with Jump Light Odyssey, where you're just like, yeah, it's it's fine. We can like we can put the, we don't need to die on this hill. It's okay. It's not as big as we think it is. And I'm sure later on, if it is actually as important as we think it may be, then later on we can re-review it again later. So sometimes it's not even mm-hmm. the kids that will know, like w- that won't notice. You know, it's even yourself forgetting about it. <laughs> yeah, just put it on the shelf and maybe it'll disappear. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So you so. What remained to be the Finch? You said you sort of left partway through. What was it? What was the next step there? Did you sort of launch yourself out of that studio and like, ah, it's time for something else and not have an idea? Or were you like, I've got things to do. Thanks, folks. <laughs> so it was kind of like a long fade out, really, it, instead yeah. of like a cutoff. So uh, while I was working on a little bit of The Unfinished Swan, when that was wrapping up and Edith Finch was starting up, I had created a prototype at a game jam for mm-hmm. what eventually became Donut County. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have a lot of time on the side, but I was working to develop just a demo. And then I brought that to Indiecade in 2012, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, there at Indiecade, I met Kelly Santiago of that game company. Who, who we had, you know, we had talked a few yeah, times. Say, yeah, you would have been like almost interacting anyway. It's another one of those near misses, right? Because yeah, yeah, it's like, oh yeah, like you know, we as, if we were in the same room, we would have known each other better, you know. Yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah, Kelly was walking by, saw the game, got to play the demo, and was like, hey, you know, we just formed this thing called Indie Fund, and mm-hmm. we're looking for projects. This seems really cool. Do you want to like apply? And so I was like, this was, this is what I was waiting for. This is it. This is my moment. (laughs) Right. And it's like, I just like, I could tell like, this is a real genuine opportunity that I need to jump on. Yeah. So I developed a a pitch deck and, you know, looking back on it, the pitch deck is really funny. It's like, I'm going to take 12 months to make this really small game. It's going to be so cute and unambitious. 
And then I, yeah, so we worked out a deal. I got some funding and that's when I was like, okay, well, I have some runway to make my own game. And that was my goal. So I'm going to part ways with Giant Sparrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but that money didn't last that long. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, uh, surprise. Surprise, surprise. It didn't last that long. Also, the develop the very beginning of development for Donut County was really rough because I still was gained, I still had a lot to learn. And so mm-hmm. there was kind of a certain point, you know, after the first year where the project did not look like it was going anywhere. So we had a meeting and Indie Fund was like, Yeah, you know, we still believe in the project, but we don't know if we believe that you're going to use the resources properly to finish it. So, you know, interesting. Yeah. This isn't goodbye, but it's like, you know, maybe you need to figure stuff out before we continue doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. So that was serendipitously the same time that Ian of giant sparrow reached back out to me and said, Hey, we, you know, have, it's a much bigger project. Do you want to do some like part-time prototyping and consulting for Edith Finch? Uh, you know, because you're That's right. You're I remember you were saying at the time I bumped into you at the time. You said you were doing some like prototyping of like different mechanics in the game and things. Because Edith like has those all different, a ton of different ways to interact and engage with the game. Right. It's a it's an anthology, so like yeah. they're split into stories, but then also the house has all sorts of little interactive things to explore. And you know, I love Ian's ideas, like. Ian's whole concept was that, you know, this game is going to be really tactile. You're going to see and see your hands and the way things move. And I was always really into toy-like physics-y things. Mm -hmm. So while I was running out of money to make Donut County, I was also, (laughs) uh, you know, part-time working on Edith Finch. So it's like, for a part-time job, there's literally, there couldn't have been a cooler part-time job to keep myself afloat. So I feel really lucky. Um, but when I was there part-time, I, I developed prototypes for some of the smaller stories in the game. Yeah, cool. So I got to, you know, come up with the idea for like, you're a baby in a bathtub and you yeah. make this frog jump around and <laughs> you're on a swing set and you have to physically move your legs to pump. Um, and what like was you're the, tell, me about your, tell me about your process for this. Did you employ a sort of like game jam fund, like sort of, approach to it or did you did you have designs did you and Ian sort of figure it out or was it just free rain and you sort of started smashing stuff together Mm. in code or tell me about the process for like say figuring some of this stuff out yeah it was very game jammy I think uh the the cool thing about working with Ian on that project Mm. is that Ian's really multi-talented and you know he's both a, a coder and a designer and a writer And so we kind of had, you know, we had an understanding that like, you know, we could kind of take care of whatever we needed to at any given time. So it felt like a game jam where Ian would come to me and say like, hey, uh, I have this idea for like a photography story, you know, and we just start hashing out like, what is what can you do with photography? And we invented all sorts of different mechanics and, you know. Then we'd pick one and I would just go sit down, open a Unity project and just start building a little jam version of it and then we'd show people on the team and then you know i i think my hit rate was probably 50 percent like 50 percent of them were trashed 50 percent of them were used in some way shape or form it's Uh, still a great hit rate. (laughs) yeah pretty good i mean it's a long. it takes a long time obviously if you're gonna sit down and program something and put all the cubes in and stuff like that but it was really it was really fun and they were 
Ian was working on these really huge ambitious stories. So mm -hmm. I had a lot of freedom to make much more constrained, simple ones. And so that, and that process you, was well suited for it. Were you working in a proprietary engine? Uh, the game, no, the game was in Unreal, but I was making right. prototypes in Unity just because it was really fast. Yeah, so yeah of course. That, well, something like that might have been happening for sure. Man, that is like the dream part-time job. That's like the dream video games really? part-time job. It's like just come to this really cool, almost like, you know, like triple I indie project and you just make the, you just do the little game jam in the corner, come up with the cool ideas and fiddle around. It's too good to be true. And that's why it it's people ask for advice. I'm like, ah, I, I can't tell you to do what I did. That makes, you'll never get that opportunity. Yeah, you're like the trust fund kid of video games or something, you know, like you've just fallen into some great lot. It's amazing. No, good very on you, blessed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's some mini golf backyard creation, like connection to this as well. You're, you're on the path early. That's where it comes um, from, yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a line that can go through all of this. <laughs> yeah, I feel so very in lucky. The, in the Ben Esposito Torah Horse canon, um, where does Capsule Silence 40, or 24 come into things? Okay, Capsule Silence was, I had met Anamanaguchi previously a few times just because, like, you know, it's the same kind of thing where, like, similar tastes. You show mm -hmm. up somewhere, you meet them, and you're like, oh, man, I love you. I've loved your stuff. And, you know, they loved all the Arcane Kids work. And, again, this is another story of, like, I was running out of money again and was talking <laughs> to Anamanaguchi, and they were like, oh, we love Sonic Dreams Collection, like, and we want to do a kind of album in the form of a game. And so I was like, this is perfect because I'm about to be completely broke. Uh, working on Donut County. So like, I'll make something with you guys. And so that process was really fun because they kind of mm. just said, do whatever you want. And I thought the thing that was interesting about it was they didn't really talk amongst themselves much about it. So I had this idea. Um, Capsule Silence is like a free game that was kind of like a, a cheeky way to release an album uh that was kind of like yeah it was it was weird but it was essentially like an album in the form of a game and but yeah, it was in the Anamana, for, our, for our listeners anamana gucci is a uh, chip tunes right like band. is that yeah. what you call it yeah yeah, yeah that was tunes. they started as a chip tune band they kind of have expanded but that was the that was yeah. their appeal so yeah they like wanted to do something like an arcane kids game and they had all this music and so i pitched them the idea that you are playing a game that they failed to finish and got leaked and you'd play for five minutes and find out it was broken, but you could kind of cheat your way into the developer um, sandbox where you'd get to see like their headquarters that had like a room for each one of the bandmates and you'd explore <laughs> the room and look for different um, look for stuff that you know, was important to them. And you'd also find demos that they were working on that you could actually like pick up a tape, grab it and put it in a tape player and listen to oh, actual okay. music that they were making. Um, and so it was, that was really fun. I interviewed each of them to try to figure out what was in the room. Uh, and you know, I just, I just, I played a little bit of like a therapist to all of them and figured out <laughs> what their uh, anxieties were. <laughs> 
video game therapist Ben Esposito. I love it. Right, because it's like if if I'm gonna be the if I'm gonna be a lo- good level designer, I need to know like what's where what are the anxieties in this room? And <laughs> so yeah, there was a lot to work with. It turns out. Um, so that was a blast. <laughs> and, it was really fun. And so timeline was this pre Donut County after Donut County? This was uh, before Donut County came out. This must have been 2016, yeah. I think. So still in that period of trying to finish the game, looking for cash and other opportunities. Yeah, Donut or, County took me six years. Yeah, right. So, so when did? <laughs> yeah. So when did Nathan and Deb and the Annapurna crew like swoop in and and throw you a rope, so to speak? That was um, maybe around a little after that time. So yeah. I think end of 2016, early 2017. Um, I was talking to Indie Fund and they're like, yeah, you know, this was great and all, but like, you know, let's see other people. We, yeah, let's see other people. We can't give you any more money. Sorry. (laughs) No, I understand. Like, yeah, of course. Yeah. It was going to take 12 months instead. It took, uh, you know, five years (laughs) and it wasn't done. So anyway, I contacted, um, Nathan Vela, who was part of Indie Fund and was head of Cappy at the time and Nathan was like I, I'm gonna help you find money somehow and so yeah. Bella hooked me up with Nathan Gary um, who was previously of Santa Monica studio and I had known Nate because I worked at Santa Monica studio on uh, Giant Sparrow games so we yeah, had kind of known each other Nathan Gary was creative director of that incubator am i right or was like a big a big proponent i'm not sure if that was his exact title but he's a big proponent of the incubator and all of those indie teams i remember him working pretty intimately with them all yeah like he was kind of the like head of all those indie ish projects uh yeah. on ps3 yeah so that was like a cool like renaissance period but yeah that was winding down and i had talked to him and he was like yeah a bunch of us are leaving and we're gonna kind of form our own thing to keep the torch going yeah. uh, and so that's when they formed Annapurna I contacted them uh, about like yeah do you want to publish Jonah County this, this is this your vibe or whatever and they were like yes our vibe is whatever like we think <laughs> really funny. let's do it our vibe uh, is you Ben yeah yeah they were just like you're the kind of guy that we would want you know yeah. making stuff because you know you have you have a unique thing to say based on this game <laughs> So it was like the cut of your jib. Basically. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess so. I was the known quantity too, right? I had been yeah, around. Right. So it's it also that you're not like pitching on a pitch deck as well. Like you've been working on this game for a number of years. How far away were you at that point in time? Like when you could put the game in front of them and said like, hey, are you interested in this? Like how mm. far were you from, I guess, that being, I don't necessarily mean in time, but I mean, just in regards to like, how close were you to wrapping that game? Was there, were you halfway mm. through it? Was it, you know, and I guess there's a difference between how, how far were you through it and how far did you go <laughs> through it? That's true. Um, so the game took, it's such a simple game. If you've played it, it's like two hours long. Yeah. Can and you just explain for our viewers who maybe haven't played yeah. um, or seen Donut County? What is Donut County? Uh, Donut County is a, physics-based puzzle game where you play as a hole in the ground and you move the hole under objects that fall in and every time something falls in the hole gets a bit bigger 
Um, so it's a little Katamari, uh, but it's a puzzle game and not like a kind of time trial thing. Mm. So there's that puzzle component. And then there's also a story that's playing out kind of in a kind of like out of time sequence order that you're piecing together. Like what happened, what's going on in this town? Who's causing the holes to appear? Yada, yada, yada. So it's a cute game. It's for kids and adults to play together was kind of the idea. And by this point, I've been working on it for years and I was. The reason it took so long is because I reinvented it three or four times and totally changed the format and, you know, the hub world and the way the story's told. Yeah. Uh, you know, originally there was never supposed to be any text. It was all going to be um, just characters posing and you can hear me <laughs> sighing and feeling really tired. Yeah, that's good. Diving back into that like design space. I just, I just witnessed you go there. Yeah. It's like, Oh my God, my eyes will just glaze over talking about all these like totally random constraints I decided to follow. Um, anyway, so I had kind of gone through so many iterations and it was finally clicking. Yeah. Okay. And that's when right before I talked to Annapurna. So when I pitched them, I said, I actually have this figured out. And so it was actually mostly just production once I signed with them. Incredible. And it actually just proved to be that like when you signed with them, you were just like, all right, let's go. And you just basically marched onto the finish line. Yeah. I was like, I made the last two, uh, the last one third of the game once after I signed with them. If they weren't such experienced, like, uh, (laughs) what would you say? Like, um, publishers if you want to call like their time at you know at playstation that and also game developers themselves you would have ruined them for video games like for because like imagine <laughs> signing one of your early projects and they're like i just need the money i'll finish it and then they just go and do that like never happens in video games uh that's they really got the it's like as well splitting with indie fund and then going to them like you said like you know it made sense but it's also like when your ex leaves you and then they go and like they fully better themselves and they're with a new partner <laughs> and you're like, that's who you needed to be for me. And you know, thankfully I think the, the people behind any fund kind of knew that they were like, yeah. actually we need to let him go for him to grow. So I'm going to say it was like calculated and expected on their part. Um, but yeah, it's it like- sucks to be the person who has to say goodbye and they're like, ow, this hurts, but it'll be better for you, I guess. Yeah. It's like you have this recurring character from this CEO that's like, that, that didn't give you the job. And then Indie Fund as well is like, to love you, we must let you go, Ben. <laughs> I'm extremely grateful because every time it's happened, it was really great. Yeah. For me, at least. I don't know what it was like. <laughs> but, you know, I basically, to your point, it was such a painless process to finish that game with Annapurna that I kind of made it my MO to be like, well, when I do a new project, I'm not going to be a pain in the butt to them. (laughs) I'm going to continue being like easy to work with. And so far it's been pretty good, actually. Pretty good. We'll, we'll, you're not the judge of that. We'll check with Annapurna after this. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to hear what they have to say, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's you Don't at me. Okay. Um, all right. Well, then in between Donut County and Neon White, which I want to get to as well, which is your, you know, your most recently released game, um, amazing. I've been playing it, is this, <laughs> this absolutely amazing game called Tattletale. 
Oh yeah. So, <laughs> let's let's spend a little bit of time diving into Tattletale. How did it come about? What was your involvement? Um, like, and also let's explain to folks um, maybe before we dive into that what Tattletale is. Okay, so Tattletale came out the end of 2016, and it's a pretty short indie horror game that we put on PC. And the premise of it is that it's 1998, I think. It's a nostalgic game, like you said. And um, you get this character called a Tattletale that's like a Furby for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you play as a kid who opens up his present early and kind of like as punishment for opening it early, this toy keeps coming out of its box and causing more and more trouble for you. Um, and so that's kind of the, the gimmick of the game is that it's Furby. Inspired. And it's a horror game. <laughs> it's, and it's, it's, it's a it's horror a probably, game. Yeah, it's like it's straight a up horror game. terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the origin of that game uh, was actually, that was a collaboration with my now wife, Geneva. And she's a cartoonist. And so we are always talking about ideas. And we had been playing a ton of horror games at this time. I don't remember mm-hmm. why. We were just... We would just go on Steam and sort by price and buy like every horror game under five dollars. <laughs> and we'd played we played a ton of them and we were like, you know what? These are surprisingly fun for being kind of like so simple and you know, not really well realized, but like we're still enjoying yeah. these. Kind of like so, Steam shovelware almost. Yeah. And we were like, but we were pleasantly surprised how fun they actually were. Yeah. And so that's when that's why we started thinking about horror games and you know wouldn't it be fun to make a small one um at the same time i was also running out of money again uh because the anamanaguchi <laughs> thing didn't pay that well yeah so, i was gonna say it sounds like a recurring theme but in all of game development not just you it's like the, right. the, the the roller coaster of no money and project funded no money project funded exactly so you know this was this too was motivated by like motivated by i have to do something that makes some money so it's, and this is, I, have I got my timeline wrong? Did it, Tattletale come out before Donut County? Is this still another project? That, right, okay. So this is yeah. during the Donut County sort of like marathon. This is this is another one that came along in the meantime. It was during a low point of Donut County. <laughs> so I was really happy to do anything but work on Donut County. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we were like, you know, I need to make money. We came up with this. Furby idea that we thought was so funny. Geneva designed the tattletale and she like gave him little human baby feet. And we're like, Oh my God, that's so funny. We have to do that. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, well we have like, I can't spend more than two months making this game. Yeah. And so what I did was I was like, okay, this game has to be successful because I absolutely (laughs) need money. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make the trailer first. I'm going to take this concept, make a trailer and then show it to my friends and be like, you know, is this viable? And so I made the trailer, which is on YouTube. You can see it's literally unchanged from, you know, before I made the game. And uh, yeah, we made it and we're like, oh, my God, this is really cool. Like, this is exciting. This will probably sell itself. And so we continued to work on it. We did it in two months. It was me and Geneva and my friend Tom Astle, who is also an indie dev, who was also kind of at a low point on his project. And he was <laughs> ready to do something else too. So we teamed up and he helped program and design. So we made that game really fast. 
It was so you actually did it in two months. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. What what made that possible? How'd you go about, you know, making obviously there are games that you can make in that. Do you think it was just scope? Does it was there a particular way that you went about it? Was it you just mm. saying, that's it, it's done? <laughs> Let's see, you know, <laughs> and hands down, you know, tools down. It was, you know, I, I really attribute it to all of the games we had played as research first. Yeah. So like we were playing games that were under two hours and like, yeah, for five dollars or less. And so yeah, I had yeah. a before I even went to design Tattletale, I had this document of like, here's what makes a successful horror game. Yeah. And I had like a bunch of bullet points that I had like really thought about. And I was like, oh, these are totally doable as long as you stick to just, you know, achieve these bullet points yeah. that, and put it in an appealing package. So we had a re- we knew exactly what we needed to accomplish, which is why we could make all sorts of choices to make it easier to make. Cause like mm-hmm. we didn't get hung up on like, for example, the house that Tattletale takes place in is just a stock asset from the asset store. It's like, we yeah. just, we just bought it wholesale and then changed all the pictures in the picture frames. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. And there, there's one other anecdote that I think is funny where we were working, Tom and I were working on it. We were designing the monster who chases you around and, you know, mm-hmm. Tom brought up like, look, on our really tight schedule, I don't know how we're going to finish because doors are going to be so complicated to manage with the monster. Yeah. And we were sitting down looking at it and we're like, oh, yeah, this this schedule is impossible if we want to do doors. And so I was looking at it and I was like, do we have to do doors? And Tom was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, couldn't they just be randomly locked or unlocked just to create a more interesting layout? And he was like, I guess so. And so we just crossed doors out off of the list and the game every night doors are either open or, or not, and they can't ever be changed and nobody ever noticed or cared. So you can't open doors in that game. It did. It, do you feel like it gave you, does it give the game some sort of kind of replayability? Do you feel, or does it change the experience as of that? Or was it just like, no, nah. no, it's <laughs> just the doors don't move. And yeah. If the, yeah, it's like each night, there's five nights and yeah. you know each night I would have a door open or closed depending on what kind of, how difficult I wanted the layout to be. Oh, right. And I so, got you. I thought you meant they were changing on subsequent runs or something like that. Oh, no. no. But it's like as progressively as you get through the nights, you just close different doors and everything. Yeah. It also it's not the, as interesting it, as what you were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> You're a designer. You, you think of, of fun ideas all the time. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. This isn't my time. This is Ben's time. I've got to remember. Um, yeah, that's it's beautiful as well, though, because it also gives the house this kind of like it, is, it shows it shifting through time at the nights as well. Mm. Like, right. It, it may, I'm sure it gives it this for something very cheaply. It like gives it this sort of lived in presence as well. Yeah. And it also kind of spoke to the theme about like you are playing as a child from a child's perspective. And so like, yeah not having agency over your surroundings did it helped the ambiance of the <laughs> yeah. whole thing. picturing someone's dad like hollering who closed this door <laughs> you don't have that yep. you don't have agencies to touch the heater or like close doors as a child that's, that's right. absolutely yeah. adult stuff that's yeah exactly someday you'll get to do it, it and you'll get really sick of it <laughs> all right so i love that little tattle tale and hey here's the grand question was it successful was it was it your little two-month success 
Yeah, it was financially successful and, you know, we made back our investment and then some a lot and, you know, it can, still continues to sell because it kind of like got caught up in all the YouTube uh, yeah, horror yeah. stuff and it blew yeah. up there. And so it's funny, the nostalgia cycle came all the way around and now people are remembering Tattletale from their youth. And so people oh are like tweeting God. about it all of a sudden. I'm like, oh, that's because you were like 10 when Tattletale came out. Oh, my God. <laughs> you created, you've like, you've like eaten um, Furby. It's like you've come like, like a bigger fish in some like for a new generation. <laughs> Tattletale is the new Furby. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's now, it's a, it's not a big one, really. It's more of a cult hit. But in the, the yeah. canon of mascot horror games, it's, it's there, which is pretty cool. Love it. Yeah, that's amazing. There's so much horror stuff coming out, but like I think there really is room for, you know, in in anything where there can be some oversaturation, there really is room for things to like bubble up to the top and sort of sort of sit there and still float at the top of the zeitgeist of a particular genre or medium. Amazing. Yeah, I absolutely. I think if you're just really clear about what kind of appeal you want to have and also, you know, what you're really trying to accomplish, it can yeah. there's always going to be something that floats up. Yeah. All right, so tell me, let's go back to Donut County. So we spend some time on Tattletale. We go to Donut County. We get Annapurna on board. It's time to sort of come towards a finish, closing it out. How did it, walk me through the process of closing that game out and how it felt and sort mm. of what came immediately after, whether it be the way that you're feeling about closing out a six-year project, how you felt about the project. It was a big, big slog like yeah. most video games. Um, I was really burnt out on it, um, mm. because I had reinvented it so many times and I kind of, find, it took me many years to come back to making it actually very simple. Yeah. And so that was really motivating to say like, wait a minute, it's just going to have a script. That's funny. The characters will talk. I can do that. And then I was also like, the levels will be in order. <laughs> and you will go from level to level and then the game yeah. is over. Um, you know, that sounds like the most simple video game ever, but it took me yeah. like four years to figure that out uh, <laughs> to find out that that was fine to do. Yes. Um, right. Okay. So by that time I was really running out of steam. You know, I was like, I really did want to make it great. And so I put in, you know, all the effort I could Geneva helped me write parts of it. Um, another friend, Heather Penn, who's a fantastic artist. She yeah. remade the characters and they looked gorgeous. And so, but it was still mostly just me working on it. Yeah. Uh, which is really, it's hard to stay motivated when it's yeah. just you because you can't even spin your chair around and like bounce something off someone or anything. Right. It's like, it's just yeah. you in your own head making like sense checking everything. Yeah. And like the thing, the thing I always say is really hard about working alone is that, you know, the thing that actually weighs on you the most are the arbitrary decisions. So like, for example, mm. should I make this cup red or blue? Uh, it's really easy if you turn to someone and say red or blue and they're like blue and you're yeah. like, awesome, cool. And you put, you make it blue. But when it's you and this is the thousandth decision like that you've made that day, you start yeah. second guessing yourself and being like, ah, oh, I don't know. I just wish there was some kind of external, you know, like, 
wind blowing that could tell me if it's right to make it red or blue. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, Surely there's like a framework, like a formal framework for deciding whether this should be red or blue, like help me. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it's like, maybe, maybe it was a coin flip. I don't know, but having someone else to tell you like, no, that's fine Mm -hmm. is so much more valuable than I ever appreciated before. Yeah. Um, so that was hard, but you know, I, I had a pretty good process. I would just, I'm not that organized, but I get up and I work all day and I do whatever I think is important to do at the time. Mm -hmm. And I just do that every single day over and over and over again. And eventually the game gets done. (laughs) (laughs) That's my production technique because I work mostly like in really, really small teams. Yeah. So I can afford to just kind of be totally intuitive that way. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a slog. It came out. Um, and then, you know, I don't like releasing video games. It's not mm. not a fun experience. Um, it's fun intellectually to know that people are appreciating it, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like the having the thing be out of your hands all of a sudden is hard emotionally to deal with. Yeah. Um, so immediately I just started like working on something else. <laughs> Was that was that some random arcane kids thing or like was it just anything to keep your hands busy or it was what I considered to be the opposite of Donut County, which would be a first person shooter. And so I like immediately made the prototype for Neon White. Oh wow. Okay. So it was so let's let's put a pin in this timeline. So Donut County released in twenty eighteen. 2018. And so 2018, you immediately pivot from sort of Donut County. It's out there in the world. The white noise of release is happening. And you put on the sweet, sweet muffling earphones of neon white prototyping. <laughs> yeah. I was like, don't look, don't look, don't look. Just do something yeah. else. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was like, because I just had an itch to make something that was really different. Mm. And it was able to distract me from yeah. the kind of like just listlessness of like oh i made a game like what do i do like i kind of can't really change it now yeah um so had you had this feeling on games that you worked on say when it was someone else's studio you know at ian's studio and you're a part of a larger team did it still feel strange and overwhelming in those moments or was it kind of it it was and then I guess even for your own games, did other games like Tattletale and things, or was it just the fact that you had been on this for six years that had been an app always running, never like <laughs> never closed in the back of your recess of your mind somewhere, even when you're on Tattletale? Yeah. I didn't feel it as much when I was working on Giant Sparrow games. Yeah, like yeah. that kind of felt like I had a, a particular role and I, I did what I could, but because it wasn't ultimately my responsibility, like how the whole thing would come out, it didn't really mean the same thing. Yes. Right. Having so much, such a high degree of agency made it much harder to finish and be like, Oh, well I could have done so many different things and maybe it would have been, maybe it would have gotten like a, I don't know how, what the meta score was a 79 instead of a 78. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's so vicious. I mean, like it, it's there are ways in which I'm sure we lean on it as creatives and we look at it and, you know, every now and then I'll go, you know, I go to Metacritic and be like, am I going to play the game? And I'll go on there. But it's also <laughs> so savage that like when we release these games, they're like, hey, everyone, guess what? Here is a numerical score for the six years of your life. Um, it's congratulations. really weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's so <laughs> fucking strange. Um, okay. Well, let's. Let's do it. Let's dive into neon white because it sounds like you're already there. You're already, like you said, di- 
dived into the prototype. And mm-hmm. did you have, so as sort of a path towards this, this conversation or leading us into this, you dive into this prototype to help distract yourself from, you know, the, the noise of the release of Donut County and, and going through all of that, right? Did you have an idea of what neon white was or were you just like you said you're like i just need to do the most opposite thing i'm going to do an fps and then it kind of formed out of that you know just having your hands in the clay it was partially like yeah i want to do whatever i could conceivably call the opposite of donut county both in terms of genre audience and thematically as well Mm -hmm. Um, i wanted to make something I was like done with wholesome. I was so done with wholesome. I was like, <laughs> oh man. Cause like, literally I was thinking about this in 2012, right? I was like, yeah. you know what? Games should be more gentle and they should be for kids and stuff. That'll be really cool. And then like, yeah, working on that for so many years, I'm like, yep. All right. I think I did what I was, what I set out to do. I'm ready yeah. to do something different. Um, so yeah, it was meant to be like something totally different. And also like, I feel like most people jumping into a new project, uh, you know, I was like, oh, this one won't be so hard to make, mm. right? For no reason, I just decided <laughs> that it wouldn't be you hard just, to make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's it. No, no outside external. You're just, yeah, this is easy again. Yeah, I, just, I, just, I just spent six years making a video game, but this one, <laughs> this will be easy. <laughs> like, I, I wish I could see like, uh, you know, film of me sitting down writing in my notebook, like this one will take nine months. I'm just like watching myself. Like, do I have a smile on my face? Like, do I know I'm kidding myself? Or yeah, is there like some form of, some hard drug in my hand or something like that? Like, yeah. <laughs> like but I wrote it. I, I wrote it. I don't know how I thought that. <laughs> it's funny, but yeah, like, so I decided like, oh, I, I want to, I wanted to come up with a project that felt really achievable because it was not ambitious and yeah. I would avoid all the pitfalls that I had learned about over the last you know, eight years or so. Yeah. And so I think honestly, like even though it did still take a long time, all of those early decisions about the scale and the scope of mm-hmm. it yeah. made it so possible to make it actually really good. Hmm kind of counterintuitively it was like oh because i constrained it so heavily and made it so simple and so much easier to make it didn't come out faster but the quality was way higher than i had ever anticipated right the degree of execution that it afforded you was just immense Mm -hmm. right yeah because we weren't we weren't trying to stitch together a huge like blanket we were making like one little crochet right and we are yeah. making every single little stitch perfect yeah hmm. amazing and so when did when did neon white sort of start to form into what it is today like you know the the, the all of these themes coming together what, how did it arise out of that prototyping process it started so in 2017 i made like a really really simple first person shooter prototype because i just mm-hmm. wanted to get it out of my system then I revisited it in 2018 and I expanded it a bunch and I came up with the idea for card, a card based yep. deck building roguelite because that was the thing at the time and still Which is. Which is what for our listeners, that's what Neon White is. So maybe I, I always forget to do this. What is Neon White for our listeners who are just tuning in? Right. You haven't heard of this game. So it's a first person 
speed running platformer is, mm-hmm. is the, the fundamental of it. The idea is that um, you play these really, really short levels and it's a time trial where you kind of replay it over and over again to get better times. And the way it's designed, that probably sounds like the least appealing thing you've ever heard. But trust me, it's actually really fun. Uh, because <laughs> but wait, <laughs> nobody likes the idea of time trials and speed running. It's really hard to get people to buy into it. Mm. But once you do, um, you kind of the, the whole kind of concept of the game is that uh, your weapons double as your movement abilities, and so each level is so constrained that you and it ends up bec- becoming kind of a puzzle. And the 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 idea was like we were watching speed running videos. We were hearing speedrunners talk, and they were talking about how like you can execute all you want, but like if someone comes up with a faster route, that all the execution in the world doesn't count anymore. It's like yeah. kind of like a puzzle at that point on such a high level. Yeah. And so we were like, oh, let's let's make a literal puzzle out of getting through this level. And so that was kind of the whole concept for the game. It's part yeah like level based time trials and then there's also a story component and characters that you get to know and um you know they the story and the gameplay are loosely connected they're not super connected um the whole idea is that it's kind of meant to evoke like a early 2000s era hidden gem playstation 2 game (laughs) (laughs) and it does it successfully as well i caught that vibe really quickly yeah it's like i don't i don't know if it's advisable for anyone else to try to do that but uh you know we thought that that was really important to capture and so we we really stuck to it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think the move like when you clear a mission and the like the flip move that white does is that's the, that that was the one that did it for me. I was like, whoa, it just like like the crash zoom in Ratatouille. It just like sent me back to the couch. It was like a, a 12 year old playing my PS1. Yeah, like just, you know, no account. Like we, we just we wanted to do everything that we loved about video games mm-hmm. uh, that that seemed absurd. That got kind of cold over time as video games be- started taking themselves a little more seriously. Yeah. So like you said, at the end of a chapter, the main character totally randomly does a backflip and like points a finger gun at the screen and says a catchphrase. Like that was really <laughs> important for the aesthetic. <laughs> it totally is. Yeah. It's amazing. It's incredible. I've heard you describe it before. I haven't heard you. I've read um, an interview with you where you've described it as a real gamey game. And I, and I think it is absolutely refreshingly so like, I, when I when I dove in and it's the first level and it was like done in two minutes and I was like and then it clicked to me that it's like a time trial thing when it came up on screen and it's like you know the times and I saw I was like oh and then I dove in again and immediately I found myself playing like five or six and I'm not a time trial guy but I was like in there and I'm like all right cool and you know the the way in which you know like little mechanics come through in regards to the unlocks and and then the hub world it it, it definitely has those like you say like hallmarks really gamey game hallmarks of that, mm-hmm. of that era yeah that that was a kind of like everything else a response to working on donut county and you know even mm-hmm. Edith finch where like really the mo of my me working on donut county was like i'm going to try to make a game that's better than video games right mm-hmm. i'm not going to just 
use the history of video games and what you like your your the sum of your knowledge to like rely on assumptions you have that Mario jumps in an arc and collects coins and but the coins don't mean anything. Like I wasn't going to do that. I was going to make sure everything was really thought through. And so like a three-year-old could play Donut County because they don't have any assumptions about video games. Yeah. Yeah. And so it turns out that's really hard and painful to do is to try to reinvent the language of video games. And I don't even know if it's a good idea at this point. (laughs) So like, because I had all these self-inflicted wounds of like, I decided there should be no fail state in Donut County. So I'm just like sitting here figuring out how to make sure you can't possibly get into a situation that you can't get out of with Mm -hmm. physics objects. Um, Yeah, that's why when I started Neon White, I was like, you know what? This game is going to 100% rely on your knowledge of video games. And we're going to bring, we're going to emphasize the things that make games silly and fun. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to be preoccupied at all with kind of like being ashamed of how silly video games actually are. Yeah. Just embrace it. It's something that we, um, I give a, I give a lecture to first year students at a university every year out here. And it's like, it's kind of like the 15 things I learn and, you know, my time in games. And one of them talks about this is like the grand hypocrisy of games. Is it like it's, and you've kind of experienced both sides of this coin that I, that I talk about and where it's like you, the medium is so incredible and there's so much more to do and like there, it can be such a grand experience, but at the same time, like video games are fucking ridiculous. Like they're absolutely ludicrous. Like these (laughs) cartoons that we dedicate our lives to. And this pod guy talks to people around the world on this podcast, you know, (laughs) the Academy of interactive arts and sciences, you know, there's so, there's so much here. It's the biggest entertainment industry. It's a really full, you know, I think, I think you yourself have said about it being like this, or the, the full realization, like the medium that's like the most fully realized aesthetically as well. Right. But it, it is that you can never deny that hypocrisy in an, in and of itself and like how ludicrous it is in so many ways and and all everything leading up until this point like the you know the 2000s where characters are backflipping and doing finger guns <laughs> at the screen. And so yeah. I, I love that acknowledgement of it that overt acknowledgement of it yeah it was it was it felt so good to really just lean into all of that stuff like you know me and geneva talk all the time about how you know we actually love annoying voice lines that character saying, you know how you hear every time you use an ability, like they say the yeah. same thing over and over yeah. again. And at first you're like, Oh, cool. And then, you know, five minutes later, you're like, this is the most annoying thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And then two years later, you turn to your wife and you say that phrase over and over and over again. <laughs> like that becomes part of your psyche. Right. Yeah. Um, you it's know, you, I, I one, just say one the bomb has been planted or whatever. And... <laughs> it's one of my loves about the Hitman series as well. It's just like the insane NPC chatter. It's just yeah, so and you hear it like over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, incredible. And so it's like and that's to me that's not a that wasn't a problem to solve. That was something to embrace, to lean into. What do you think is the strongest, the strongest element of that? Like, or what do you think came through the 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 most for you? Like when you're pursuing that and you've got all these options, like the history of video games where everything is so silly. Um, what do you think the thing that you chose that really helped bring that pastiche home or what are the, the elements that sort of help secure that for you executing it? Mm. So this is really basic, but 
one of the earliest choices I made was one to have a narrative component, mm-hmm. but two to not have it have anything to do with the actual gameplay side. <laughs> uh, because I was so used to working on projects where like everything was load bearing in every level because it had to both have a narrative significance and mm-hmm. it also had to be a really fun game kind of in isolation. Yeah. And so like, you know, Edith Finch is a great example because I wish people could see the meetings that we had where we were sitting in a room thinking of, we were like talking about a character and we had to list like every object in that room and the significance of every single object and like the age of that object and the origin of that object yeah, and the order you'd see those objects. And it's like, that was really cool and rewarding, but it made it, it was, everything was really, really thought through yeah, And so because I freed myself from that, that burden really early on. And I said, mm. Ludo narrative dissonance is actually fine. Like yeah. they don't have to work together at all. In fact, isn't it kind of funny if we lean into it? So that meant that we were able to kind of design the world in a way that was really, really you know pitch perfect for just the type of gameplay that we wanted to do. So we made choices that I kind of would have probably balked at before then. Like, for example, you know, anything that's breakable is bright, explosive barrel red. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, and in like this like beautiful white environment, you know, with the pristine like blue water and everything. <laughs> yeah, and also like platforms can float. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to have architecture holding it up. It's a it's a fantasy game. It's in heaven. And this doesn't sound very profound, but because we were so kind of like keyed into what we wanted to achieve and what we really didn't care about achieving, we were able to like have this really great heuristic for like, is it important to do a good job on that? And so a lot of things we said, actually, it's really not like it doesn't support our really fundamental idea that like it has to be extremely fun here. And then it also has a narrative that keeps you engaged and, you know, fits with it kind of shows you the theme and the time period and it yeah. and it also provides pacing and that was kind of it was it was not that hard to make all those decisions now when you when you recount this you're saying we this we that etc and you you spoke at length about you know the the burdens of being on donut county on your own and choosing between the red and the blue cup right so talk to me about neon white and the team and how how that sort of that sort of formed that project was very organic kind of like all my other past projects mm-hmm. where well it started with geneva one day was we were hanging out and she turned to me and said neon white and i was like what and she was like, Neon White, that would be a cool name for a game. <laughs> and I was like, you're right, that would be a cool name for a game. And that's when, like, out of nowhere, we just came up with the whole premise for the, like, setting and the wow. environment and the characters. Um, so that's how it started, right? And I had this prototype of a first-person shooter, and so we were like, oh, yeah, that goes great together. Yeah. Um, so it started with me and Geneva, She, her just kind of giving me ideas and helping develop the world and the characters. And then... It started with me and a level designer um, mm-hmm. and uh, whose name is Ames. And they had totally randomly contacted me about just like wanting to interview me because they had just graduated USC. 
And at the, <laughs> the end classic of the, email, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Like the, and at the, the end of the student emailing you for an interview, yeah. So we we were, we just got coffee and we were just like chatting and it was very fun. And at the end of the interview, they were like, "So what are you working on?" And I was like, <laughs> "Oh, well, I have this little prototype." Uh, so they came uh, to the office and watched the prototype, and they're like, "Can I work on this?" And I was like. <laughs> It's not even a game yet, but you know what? It might be fun to involve more people. So yeah, yeah. Ames worked on it for like a year and helps figure out mm -hmm. kind of like what a level really feels like and looks like and mm -hmm. explored there. And then we kind of had one level as a designer at a time. So it was Ames then for a year, Justin for a year, and then Carter for the last year. And none of them worked on it at the same time, but they all just, there was always someone cranking on it. And they would all get better opportunities that they couldn't say no to. And they kind of moved on. And I had hired one of their friends. <laughs> I love it. Which, which, I love it. It's, like a share, it's like a share house where you like pass on your room to like your mate or something. Yeah. yeah it's like maybe they felt guilty. They're like, oh, I got this better job. But like, well, I mean, my friend could do it. And <laughs> honestly, every one of them was amazing and totally exceeded my expectations. Um, Hell yeah. So that was cool. And then, you know, I brought on the familiar cast of characters from Arcane Kids. So Tom Astell again came and helped out. Um, and really good friend, Russell Honor, who has been in Arcane Kids since the beginning. Um, I convinced him to help out and he did. He also does everything. So he helped program stuff and he designed a whole mission. And uh, then we had a bunch of part-time people working on all the art and uh all told, it was probably no more than five people working on it full time at its height. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. then it had, you know, 18 people total, like actually touch it at some point or another. So it wasn't. Yeah, that's awesome. It was very manageable. And like I said, we didn't have a producer. It was just me. But because everyone worked part time over such a long period, I never got into a position where I couldn't have, I didn't have work for someone. Yeah. So it actually really, it was a really, Maybe it was just pure luck. I don't know, but it worked out really well. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing when the when the games that we create and the work that we're doing can provide opportunities for folks, you know, and whether they whether they come and go throughout the process or whatever, like that, it can act as a launching pad for other talent and hopefully other games and careers that can come out of that. It's awesome. Yeah, I loved working uh, with stu recent students. Like that was so rewarding for me because I was able to show them a lot, and you know they had the energy. That energy, yeah, that's it. The new blood. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like you said, it's a speed running game. Tell me, like, has there been any sort of traction in the speed running community? Was it kind of embraced, or is it is it one of those things with the speed running community where it's like, no, 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 you can't make a game for us. We will come <laughs> and we will destroy your game. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of both. Like, it there's yeah. there is a community of people speed running it, and it's really amazing to watch uh, because you know they've taken it so much farther than we expected. Yeah. But at the same time, it there was a little bit of that effect where like. You know, part of the fun of speedrunning is the irony of like you weren't supposed to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, so you know, yeah. I think it kind of like it's successful a little bit in that arena, but it's also not like a huge speedrunning game. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's <laughs> it's incredible as well. Like I have those moments where I like I'm like, 
all right, cool. I unlocked the global leaderboards and I go and I look and it's like 126,000th place. I'm like, fuck, okay, what? (laughs) Yeah, there are people out there like really, really like crunching out these levels like in amazing times. Have you you seen some stuff that's just blown your mind in regards to that sort of like the puzzle space that you created for the game and how people have exploited it? Yeah, there's there's so many little exploits that people found. I mean, the things that make me laugh the most are that I don't even remember exactly why this is faster, but there are certain levels that you need to turn V-Sync on for because there's some kind of like little thing that like, I don't know, having having vertical sync on a locked frame rate like helps better or whatever. And so in (laughs) speedruns, you'll just see them open up the menu and like fiddle with some settings and hit go. Um, And so that's been really funny. Wow. Uh, Also, another one of the funniest exploits is in a boss fight at the end of the Mm -hmm. boss fight. When you kill uh, the boss, he does a whole like animation and then you have to go and kind of like strike the final blow on him. Mm -hmm. But if you can manage to kill yourself before that happens, the game still registers that you've completed the level because the boss is dead. And so people exploit the fact that if you use the melee weapon enough times, 30 times, you'll die because I thought it was funny. Uh, (laughs) And so when they're doing a boss fight, they're constantly swiping the sword at nothing to run out of ammo for the sword. And then right when they strike the final blow on the boss, they like whack their katana a few more times and then kill themselves and then they win. (laughs) Oh, there's something almost like poetic to it, like some kind of like sepa, diegetic seppuku thing or something like, yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like having our character like whipping himself the whole time kind of does work. <laughs> it's really good. It's really good. Well, hey, I, I absolutely enjoyed my time with it. I felt like a kid, you know, playing it again. It was a really, it was a really great experience. Like it, it did send me back in that sort of nostalgic way, you know, to the early 2000s. And I think in the same way that you felt as a game developer, like unshackled from the, you know, the constraints of modern game design and, you know, and everything needing to end of Ludo narrative dissonance or the great fear or the fear of our mortal enemy. Um, mm. I, I also felt that as a player, like experiencing mm. it, I felt like the game was just like, it's fine. Like just hit the back button to restart the mission. We fully expect, you know, like <laughs> this is a game. Like, and I also then shamelessly was like, speed reading all of the like the dialogue <laughs> and it's like yep 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 and i and so i was like yeah like the the story is there but again it like has no sort of it engaged me but it has no relevance to the actual actions you're doing in the game it's it's i i really i really enjoyed it and it's and it's been incredibly validating of that experience because i'm like am i just abusing this experience but it's so <laughs> validating coming on here and hearing you talk about that being your intention <laughs> Yeah, it's it's it was really freeing to be able to just not worry about any mm. of that stuff. And, you know, the experience was great because we we had all these like ideas that were not really the right way to do things in mm-hmm. 2019. Yeah. Um, you know, don't don't make a game where you yeah, you speed run. That's that's really silly. Don't have cards on the screen. People are going to be confused. And we were like, you know what? If we just have utter confidence in our concept and fully mm-hmm. execute it to its logical conclusion, like maybe not everyone is going to look at it and say, oh, I need to buy that. But if you play it, you'll probably feel that confidence. And hopefully when you feel the confidence in the game, you give it a chance and say like, well, yeah. I'll try to meet it 
I'll meet it halfway and see if I enjoy it. And I think most people who do give it a chance do enjoy it on that level. Hmm. It's interesting you talking about confidence in the game as something that you can actually you can actually feel as a as a player because it 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 is so true. And I and I think it's something that runs through so many of your games. Like it was definitely there in in Tattletale. It was something that even from the trailer, like you said, it's still online. You made the trailer before the game was developed, but there was a, there was a de- there's actually a degree of confidence in just doing that. First of all, you know, like, <laughs> but then like the degree of execution there, um, it it really does come through in your work. And so I think the question that I have for you around that is, what do you what do you feel is the most important thing for you as a developer in in gaining that confidence or in like actually that that coming through in a game or what do you think gives a game that sensation of confidence this is a great question i'll just i'll just give you some ideas yeah riff Um, yeah some riffs i'll yeah i think a lot of times the confidence simply comes from knowing what you don't want to do just Mm. as much as what you do want to do so what you leave out tends to kind of like sharpen an experience a lot. And I feel like you can kind of tell when a game was throwing stuff in to make sure you didn't stop engaging with it. <laughs> you know, you kind of feel like, I mean, obviously I had a baby recently, but you kind of feel like a baby and you're like kind of trying to start to lose interest. And then an adult yeah. comes by and starts jingling keys in your face. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, how about some more content? Like, what if we distracted you over here and then you did this? And so I think if you walk into a game and the game confidently says, you're going to do the one thing that even if you don't, you don't, you might not even think it's going to be fun, but that's all you've got on that's on offer. Hmm. And we're going to present it with some, some style. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the devil daggers approach, right? Right. Yeah. Right. It's just like, well, it's all, it's, it's not so many games. It's simply offers one thing. And so you might not think it's appealing, but because it had the confidence to say that's all that's on offer, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of, I think a lot of video games require that you meet them halfway. Like Mm -hmm. you're not going to have a great time with any genre of game at any time in your life. You kind of have to be this isn't going to be controversial, but like to play a really in-depth RPG, it's kind of better if you're, you have a lot of free time and you're a little depressed. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they're for. (laughs) (laughs) Even the Nintendo ad for the the Zelda game is like the depressed guy on the bus. They're like literally there. They're like, play our game. You're all depressed. You're sad. (laughs) We've got, don't worry. We've got what ails you. Yeah. So it's like, you kind of have to be in the right mindset, be in the right, you know, headspace to really appreciate it. And so, I think a trick you have to pull as an indie often is kind of like do part of the work to get somebody into the correct headspace. Mm. So you kind of got them vaguely interested in the game and now it's your job to kind of grab them by the head and say, look, like, you know, you're not going to have a good time unless you accept that you are playing a speed running game. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so there's a lot of friction associated with that too. Like you might feel like, oh, these levels are so short and neon white. That's, and I'm not a speed runner. Ew, that's so weird. Um, But yeah, like because the game so confidently says like, here's what is on offer and we're going to have you redo it. It's going to be a little counterintuitive, but trust me, if you make it through the first half hour, you're probably going to have decided you, you know, enjoy 
playing levels over and over again, even if you said you don't. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's like the confidence coming through. Yeah. Is the ability to just actually that, that restraint in what, what you're actually throwing out there or that, that sort of insecurity. It's funny because yeah, it is a kind of insecurity as a developer or that we've learned, I think through video games being a commercial trade, a commercial creative Mm. trade as well. Right. It's like, we need that engagement. We need, you know, we need all of the little, the flags or whatever sprinkled around our open world map for people to dive into once they've collected the feathers and the the other (laughs) things, right. Is, is, is that insecurity of, you know, folks, stepping away of that exit point on the game and when when you have that confidence to just be like like you say this is what's on offer this is it like if you get bored of this then you know go play something else that's fine it's uh, right like i know you can go and play the witcher again like (laughs) so i simply can't offer you anything like that and i won't (laughs) i love it well let's say um maybe that's a beautiful place to leave it then um thank you so much for joining us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed our chats. Yeah, thanks. This was a lot of fun. I love talking shop. Yeah, it's it's amazing. We'll um we'll have to do it next time I'm out your way. Yes, please. Let's do it. All right. Uh thanks, buddy. Have a great day. You too. Peace. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.